0: This is The Guardian.
1: I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. Serena Williams, one of the greatest athletes of all time, announced her retirement from tennis this week, forcing us all to rethink our relationship with work. Her choice, a choice between her career, doing what she loved, and the physical labour of having a family is one many have been forced to make. Australia has one of the least generous parental leave programs in the developed world, forcing women to bear the brunt of caregiving responsibilities and further entrenching an already stark gender pay gap. Society is undergoing a period of profound transition. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused a radical disruption to work and home life. So, is the time right for a change? Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Associate News Editor Joe Tovey about rethinking work, family, and what success looks like. It's Friday, the 12th of August. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Joe. Hi, Gabs. So this week, Serena Williams wrote an essay in Vogue, which pointed to maybe retirement or something she's calling an evolution. It made me very sad, Lenore. But uh, what did you think when you read it?
2: Oh, well, I mean, she sort of announced her retirement from tennis, that she'd focus on family and on her uh, business interests. But the bit that I think captured everyone's attention was that she wasn't getting to this place because she's had enough or because she really felt like she'd achieved everything she wanted to in tennis, although Lord knows why she wouldn't feel like she's (laughs) achieved a lot, Mm -hmm. but in large part because she wanted to have another child. And that's a difficult thing to do when you're 40, almost 41, and an elite athlete, so you know, she said she didn't want to have to choose between tennis and her family and it's not fair. And if she was a guy, she wouldn't be writing this because she'd be out there playing and winning while her wife was doing the physical labour mm. of expanding our family. And I think that conundrum is what has captured a lot of people's attention.
0: Mm, I thought it was so powerful, particularly because Serena is such a kind of an an icon of sort of power and strength and resilience to write what was really such a kind of vulnerable and revealing essay Mm. that revealed a really kind of human side to her and one that I think a lot of people can relate to and she's not a figure that many of us can claim to relate to (laughs) um, most of the time. (laughs) You know, she's somebody who has been at the top of her game for decades, for my whole adult life, really. She is, I think, probably the greatest athlete of my Generation, and she's not only been stellar on court, but what she's dealt with off the court in terms of dealing with incredible levels of racism and sexism. She has also become kind of a a cultural icon. You know, I think of her in the Beyonce video for sorry, giving a middle finger and being gorgeous and a fashion icon. You know, just this kind of incredible cultural figure who then has to admit that she can't keep going, Mm -hmm. that something's finally got the better of her. And in this case, it's her biology. She can't outrun the fact that if she wants to have more children playing tennis at the elite level, something's going to have to give. And it was that line, something's going to have to give, I think that really struck a chord because I think, you know, most of us find at some point in our life, the kind of, the dreams you have and the things you want to do, compromises have to be made. So that I think was what uh, really stuck out for me.
1: And Lenore, has the conversation changed or is this the same conversation we've been having as women for for a while now.
2: Well, I guess for me, I really bridle at that question being posed just for women Mm. when it comes to parenting and families. I don't for a minute question that parents often make compromises or have to balance work and family, but I really get infuriated by the idea that the can-you-have-it-all question only relates to women. Mm. Because in most cases, like not in every case, but in most cases, two people make a choice to have children and two people are participating in the raising of those children. And I think if as women we allow the question to be framed as can women have it all rather than can parents have it all, we're setting ourselves up for failure. We're setting ourselves up for a, for a completely self-defeating question. Of course you can't do two full-time jobs in one day. Like, of course you can't, duh. But if you phrase it as, can parents have it all, then the answer is probably still no, but it becomes the choices that people make and who compromises when and where and how tidy do you want your house to be. And, you know, like you can work it out and it doesn't become a self-defeating, demoralising question for women which is basically setting ourselves up for failure. But I've got to say, I guess the the but is probably, except if you're an elite athlete who's (laughs) 40 and trying to have another baby, you know, like maybe in that circumstance, but in most other circumstances not. And even for elite athletes, I mean, Lauren Jackson, the basketballer, returned to basketball this week after like eight years away from the game during which she'd had two kids and she's just been selected for the World Cup. So even athletes can work it out, but I, I do have to concede that they are in a sort of special category. Yeah,
1: And not all athletes could win a Grand Slam eight weeks pregnant. (laughs) I know. It was extraordinary. (laughs) She is a pretty extraordinary person. Mm. And Do, what does it actually mean to have it all? Well, I think that's such an interesting place
0: to start. I think a lot of women sort of see this as a kind of reflexive question of having it all and there are certain assumptions baked into that about having a successful career, being a good mother and a present mother, being fit and healthy. There are all these kind of demands on Being women, a partner. Being a partner, all of these things. Whereas we don't often ask men, what does it mean to have it all? And I was talking about this with my own partner last night when I was thinking about this as a concept and he sort of said, no man thinks about what it means to have it all. And if they do, a lot of those demands are quite different. Men's expectations of parenthood, even kind of well-meaning feminist men maybe don't really think about what it would mean to step back in their careers. These aren't sort of questions that face men in the same way they face women. And I think part of when we think about how we kind of remake society so that it works for women, it's about adjusting men's expectations too and setting that up quite early of what kind of father do you want to be? What kind of partner do you want to be? Can your idea of success not only be about where you can get in your career, but who you can be to the people in your life? That's sort of what women are already dealing with. And in order to kind of approach some level of equality here, we really need to change what that question means for men too. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree with that. And I think that takes us to a
2: level even a little bit deeper, because in this discussion, you often get to a point where women who are framing it as, can women have it all say things like, mothers just feel differently about being away from their children than men do. I had a different sort of sensibility about how I should be as a parent. Now, that may well be true in their circumstance, but I do think that we also socialise men and women to feel like that. Mm. And I don't necessarily accept the idea that mother guilt is a stronger or more real thing biologically or inherently than father guilt. I think we've been conditioned To feel that way. And I think it's going to take quite a long time of changing expectations to unpack that. It might be different right at the beginning of a baby's life. There are biological kind of, you know, your body does things to make you go not sleep at all and feed a baby all night long. Like that is different. But during the course of a child's life, every parent feels guilty. You feel guilty when you're at work because you're not at home. You feel guilty when you're at home because you're not at work. Like that is a thing. But I don't think it's necessarily or inherently a maternal thing. I think that's learned behaviour.
0: And even when we think about, I think, high-profile men and women, like Serena referred to male champions, you know, when we talk about politicians, we talk about how many male leaders are able to kind of work through the years when they have young children as if this is such a good thing. We don't talk about what those men miss out on. We don't talk about what kind of husbands they are. We don't talk about the impact of them not being present because we we don't sort of think about that as a measure of a man's mm-hmm. success or worth or value or morality. And I think at that sort of level as well, where we can start to shift, like, what does it mean to have men who are absent during their children's lives or who leave the women kind of carrying the bag and carrying the baby? I think this would help us as women as well, rethink what do we want from our lives?
1: I think studies have even shown fathers who do spend a lot of time raising their children, they end up being happier and more fulfilled in their careers. Mm-hmm. So there's there's upsides. And Lenore, what do we do to make that change happen?
2: I mean, I think you can start with laws and workplace behaviour. Well, there's a couple of things. There's how the Legal situation and workplace law deals with parenting and those sorts of issues like parental leave, right to request part-time work or flexible work. And then there's a broader question as well about our attitude to work, mm. as in how many hours are we supposed to spend at work? What is a reasonable workplace Expectation that feeds into it as well, right? Because if you're expected to work eighty hours a week, you know nobody's going to be able to make that work. And I think a lot of families, certainly like in the '90s or the '80s, where there, you know, there was really enormous expectations of very, very long working hours. I mean, if usually it was a bloke was in that situation, it really limits the choices of the other partner, right? Like, so that feeds into it. As well.
1: And Joe, in some countries they have legislated long-term parental leave for both parents. Is that something that we should be thinking about in Australia?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean Australia already has one of the sort of stingier allotments of parental leave in the OECD. You know, we might feel lucky when we compare ourselves to a country like America where women have virtually no access to paid parental leave. But the fact is women in countries like Canada or France or Sweden have more than twice the paid parental leave that we do here. But yeah, another huge factor is the fact that men in Australia still only have access to, I think it's two weeks of paid parental leave. And that's a tiny amount of time to spend at home with their children and places a huge burden on the women to become the primary parent and that's a sort of a situation that can then sort of bake in a dynamic that can last throughout the child's life, I think. Mm. It does
2: become a baked in thing because often you're having kids at the time when your career is starting to take off, so the woman spends a lot of time at home, during which time the bloke usually gets a couple of promotions, and then he's earning a lot more, and then it makes a lot more sense for mm. you know, like it, mm. it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy, and then you know she finishes her life with half as much superannuation mm. and a gender pay gap, like mm. it, and I think you know we have the eighteen weeks for women and two weeks for men in the government funded parental leave. If you put them together as, at twenty weeks and said couples, take them as you choose, I think that would actually, well, it would at least give people the choice to change that dynamic.
0: And I think you need the leadership at that level. I don't think it's enough to say to men who may have the personal option to take the leave themselves. I think you need a cultural shift. You need to normalise it. You need Mm -hmm. to let men know that you're not going to be thought of as lacking in ambition. If you take parental leave, it needs to become a social norm across Australian society, that this is just part of being a parent, part of being a working person uh, and that you won't suffer social or cultural consequences within your workplace for doing so.
2: I think and where that happens, it works and men are happy. I know in Sweden, I think that both parents are eligible for a total of 240 days leave and about 90% of Swedish fathers take it. And I think the figure here for men who take parental leave when it's available is way lower than that.
1: And Lenore, you've mentioned the demands of the workplace, which have been traditionally quite difficult. Really long hours equaled success in some Mm. people's eyes. Has the pandemic provided an opportunity for us to rethink what work is? Um, I think
2: that it has probably reset things in a helpful way in a number of levels. Even the idea that most of us now going to be doing hybrid work is helpful because if you work from home a couple of days a week, there are days when you don't have to factor in commute time. You know, you can hang out a load of washing at lunchtime. You can stick dinner on and then go back and do a few more calls. Like, you can actually be a bit more flexible and present and around on those days. I think that hybrid working is probably beneficial to finding a balance.
0: I think that's really true and I think the, the shift in work practices during the pandemic, what we've discovered was possible, has been a great thing for the work-life balance of parents but for everybody. I mean, I feel like I did more exercise and got more housework done, spent more time preparing meals when I work from home and I think that's a, that's a really good thing. I think it was sort of depressing though to see as well during the pandemic what didn't change. The fact that we saw even when both men and women were working from home You know, research showed that women were still picking up the lion's share of housework, women were doing the lion's share of homeschooling, that some of those sort of deeper cultural issues about what we think of as men and women's work and what their priorities should be in the home were sadly revealed to be harder to shift than we perhaps thought they might be if men and women were both in the home for the same amount of time.
2: And I guess the other thing that the pandemic showed us, which is also of environmental benefit, is when you actually do need to travel for work and when you actually don't. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, you can do those meetings by Zoom. It's fine. You don't have to be there. You don't have to get on a plane. And, you know, thank God for that.
1: All those things are true about the pandemic when went backwards, but it does provide an opportunity for us to stop and reflect about what work means and what success means. So, Lenore, what's the media's role, what's our role in, in changing that conversation and making people think about this a little bit differently?
2: Oh, so many things. It gets up my nose on a daily basis. Um, (laughs) We don't frame stories around can women have it all. Mm. We don't have women's pages that are full of parenting and housework (laughs) and washing and stuff and frame them as women's pages and women's issues for a start. We reflect back to people the policy questions that are happening and the shifts in society that are happening. I mean, there's a lot of things we can do, but There's a reason there are no women's pages on Guardian Australia.
0: Yeah, I think the media has a huge role in how we frame these debates. I think the way we report on politics, for example, has a huge role here. I was thinking about the federal election and the way Anthony Albanese spent so much time in kind of childcare centres and in caring settings during this election and how that clearly resonated with the voting public.
2: I think it's a really good point and it sort of goes to the value that we put on caring work mm. Mm. and how we recognise it. And the more you I mean, caring work is incredibly important work and the pandemic taught us that if nothing else had. And I think if it's valued more, maybe more blokes will want to do it.
0: Yeah, and I think we've seen a real shift where issues like childcare and aged care, which were once seen as quite peripheral policy issues, have really moved to the centre of political debate. Look what happens when we don't have them. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, These are not kind of fringe women's issues. And I think maybe this was what I was trying to say was that this is maybe one of the first elections where we've seen those issues take centre stage. These are the issues that really matter to people's lives. And I think they were proved to be election winning issues. People don't necessarily want hard hats. They want well paid childcare workers, they want to know that their mum in aged care is being looked after by somebody who's being paid properly. Like these aren't just women's issues, these are core Australian S- issues. Societal issues,
1: yeah. Yeah. Next. Generals and mansions. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Lenore, what stuck in your mind this week?
2: Uh, For me, it was an excerpt from a book called The Divider, Trump in the White House, uh, which was published in The New Yorker. And it was really an account of Trump's relations with the military, as suggested by the headline. And it was kind of so jaw-dropping that I don't think I shut my mouth for the entire (laughs) The entire time I was reading it. One piece of of information was a conversation between Donald Trump and his then White House Chief of Staff, John Kelly, who was a retired Marine Corps general. Trump was saying, you fucking generals, why can't you be more like the German generals? And Kelly went, ah, which German generals? And Trump said, the German generals in World War II. And Kelly pointed out that they had on several occasions tried to kill Adolf Hitler, (laughs) (laughs) whereby Trump said, no, they didn't. And they also lost the war. <laughs> yeah, there was a few. There so were a the few matter of <laughs> new the problems there. I mean, that you know, we can laugh at that one, but there were some incredibly serious, mm. disturbing, horrific things. You know, top military brass having to really dissuade Trump from deploying the military against peaceful protesters in the United States. Trump saying he didn't want any wounded guys in the Independence Day parade because that would look bad for him because they were losers. I mean, just it was... Gobsmacking and horrific in equal measure, and I recommend it. Mm.
0: Also, not surprising though, in a way, this is
1: we knew who this guy was. I know, but then you read the John McCain got captured guy, and it's just like, how did? Uh, I know it's both unsurprising and so shocking. Yes, every paragraph is a new incredible revelation. Which, if it was about any other president, Mm. (laughs) would itself be a story. So, you must have another thing other than that you can't get out of your head.
0: So, the story I couldn't get out of my head was Bridget Delaney's. Column from last week, Bridget. I just think is a icon in her own right, and <laughs> the columns are always worth a read. This was a particular scream of hers about how she managed to. She ended up at a house inspection one day for a, a mansion. While she was waiting for coffee, she stumbled into this kind of mansion open house, and was mistaken for a buyer by the real estate agent. And she didn't disabuse him of this misapprehension and pretended she was looking at this house. But the problem was it was too small for her. And through this conversation, ended up getting on the list for this real estate agent as a prospective kind of $15 million house buyer and had to carry on this charade over several weeks. It was just such a scream, such classic Bridget. I was trying to think, is there a sort of a broader social point to be made with this article? Like, does it tell us something about class in Australia or the sort of the real estate market in Sydney and the obscenity of that? And I don't think it does. I just think it's just sort of a classic
1: Bridget, Bridget Delaney, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's why we read her columns. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you both so much for joining us thanks, today. Thanks, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this episode. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Daniel Simo. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and me, Gabrielle Jackson. I hope you have a great weekend. And Jane Lee will be back with you on Monday.